Okay, we are heading into a new series for the summer, and you're stuck with it. And if you want to explore it a little bit further, on Thursday nights beginning, beginning this week, we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes together, which is another aspect of the teaching of Jesus on the kingdom of God. And so we're going to meet here at the church at 7 p.m., and we're just here till about 8.15. We'll pray together, we'll study together, we'll share together. So if you want to dig in a little bit deeper, uh, please come out for that. It's open to everyone. If the crowd is this big, we'll be in here. If not, we'll be in kind of the fireside room. So come and join us for that. But before we get to the series on the kingdom of God, I want to do a really brief recap of our past series. And if you were around, you'll remember that we did a quick series on uh, the church and politics, uh, the church and state. And this understanding between uh, what's the relationship between the church and the political landscape? How do we engage politically? And uh, there was reasons why we did that. But first, I have to tell a joke, because like Samuel's sermon a couple of weeks ago, I don't have a lot of funny stories in the rest of the sermon. So I heard this actually just a couple of weeks ago. It was an old um, reel that I found on YouTube, I guess it was. And it was President Ronald Reagan. I think he was addressing like a national prayer breakfast. And he told this joke. So it's not mine. And I'll use my own words, but blame him uh, for, for this if you don't like it. So he told a joke about two men, a politician and a preacher, and both died. And they went to the pearly gates to meet with St. Peter. By the way, never base your theology on jokes, right? So just so we know. Okay, so they went to the pearly gates. St. Peter's there. He checks their credentials. He said, hey, you both pass. Come on in. And he gives them a quick tour of heaven. And then he says, do you want to see your houses? Do you want to see where you're going to be? And both the politician and the preacher say, yeah, take us to our homes. And so they pull up to this really simple kind of shack. It's almost like a, a mini apartment, really just one room, really basic. It's clean, but I mean, not what you'd expect. And the politician, he's sure this is going to be his because he felt he you know, barely got in. And to his surprise, St. Peter says to the preacher, this is your new home. Now the politician is worried because he's thinking, man, if that's what the preacher gets, I'm going to be in a cardboard box on the street or maybe a van down by the river, something like that. He's going to be locked into something not nice. So they drive a little bit further. I don't know why they're driving, but they drive a little bit further and they come across this beautiful mansion. It's got a couple of pools and jacuzzis, gardens, everything you could ever imagine. And St. Peter says to the politician, this is your home. And the politician says, there must be a grave mistake, a grave error. I mean, that, <clears throat> that holy man of God, I choked that up when I talked about the preacher. <clears throat> The holy man of God got that little tiny apartment, and I get this. How can that be? And St. Peter said, well, look around. Preachers here are a dime a dozen, but you're the first politician we've ever had. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's method to my madness in this. I think the joke highlights a number of things for us, and one of the things it highlights is that we don't have a very high view of politicians, unfortunately. And so we make fun of them. Um, lawyers, politicians, you, 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 know, you can change up the story a little bit. 
But it's unfortunate. Uh, and it makes it very difficult if you are a follower of Jesus and also in politics. What does that look like? How do you maintain um, your ethics and your integrity as you work and you serve within that field? Um, but we also have an uneasy relationship between the church and state. And so how do we do that well? That's why we brought up the conversation last month. We wanted to elevate our conversation around politics as followers of Jesus. Our intention as pastors was not to tell you how to vote, right? <laughs> We're well aware that each of us have different opinions in this congregation, especially different opinions politically, and we vote differently. And that's not only okay, it's essential. We're not a one party country. That's a whole different kind of government, isn't it? And so we have multiple parties. And so it's essential that we actually vote differently uh, because I think each of the parties have a different voice and we need them all in a democratic institution. And so our goal was not to tell you how to vote or even what actions to take, but our goal as pastors is always, always to point you to Jesus. And our goal as pastors is to see a community that's formed in the name of Jesus so that even when we have differences, we have this common reality, this common focus, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And that was the purpose of bringing all of this up. I'm really glad that within our association of churches, our denomination, that we actually have a wide range historically of political champions. I'll name just two of them that might be familiar if you've been around Canada for a while. And if not, you can Google them later. But Anybody hear of Tommy Douglas? Uh, Tommy Douglas was one of our pastors, and uh, he was a, a champion politically in a certain direction. But in a very different direction, we also have John Diefenbaker, <laughs> uh, Prime Minister of Canada for a time. And he, those were very different political agendas and very different political parties. And uh, John Diefenbaker wasn't a pastor, but he was uh, a leading member of one of our congregations. And so I'm glad we have that. We have this example of political engagement from different perspectives, but they had a common thread in that they were followers of Jesus. So how do we do that well? Well, in summary, and honestly, it'll be a brief summary before we get to the introduction for the new series. But in summary, I just want to go over a theological framework of political engagement, because that's what we ended up with. Four sermons, and I think we end up with four corners on a page that give us an idea of a framework for political engagement. So imagine with me for a moment that you are an artist. For some of us, that takes a lot more imagination than others. But imagine you're an artist and you've got a canvas in front of you and there are four corners in that canvas, right? Within those four corners, you get to be creative. You get to, to paint or draw or do as, as the spirit moves, as you're inspired, whatever it is. But those four corners are essential uh, if you're going to have something that's of value. And so I think we have four corners in this method or this understanding of political engagement. Corner number one, pray. Pray. We've got some slides that Samuel made up for me. Thank you, Samuel. Pray in 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, pray for kings and all who are in authority. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks to them. This is the first corner of Christian spiritual or, or political engagement is that we pray for our leaders. 
If we move on to protest, if we move on to petition, if we move on even voting or running for office and we have not prayed, we're not doing it right. At least we're not doing it according to the Spirit. Paul says to Timothy, first of all, pray. And first of all means this, that it's an enduring priority of Christian political engagement is that we are in prayer. The second corner that we discovered is give. And I don't mean by this give to your political party of choice so you can get a tax receipt. By give, we're told by Jesus, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Yes, it means pay your taxes. If you haven't done that already, I don't know what you're going to do. But uh, yes, it means sort of pay your taxes. And Jesus in the end even paid taxes. So yes, it does mean that. But it means something far greater. It means as we engage politically as citizens of a country, we also remember that we're citizens of heaven and we're called to give ourselves to God. So just as the image of Caesar was on the coin and therefore the coin sort of belonged to Caesar, so God's image is stamped on you and me. And so we belong to God. And if we're going to engage in this world, we need to make sure that we're not of this world and that we're engaging from a place of first giving ourselves to God. This is why worship is one of the greatest political actions you can take. It's a political action because it tells the rest of the world, hey, there's something greater, something more enduring, something eternal that lasts beyond the kingdoms of this earth. The kingdom of God is eternal in that sense. And so we are citizens of the kingdom. So while we pray for the king, we worship the king, <laughs> right? You get the difference. And that's what the early church always said. We'll pray for Caesar. We'll do it publicly, but we'll only worship Jesus. And so we don't worship a political party or a political person. We only worship Jesus. And that is in, in itself political engagement. So that's the second corner. Third corner, and this is the toughest one, submit, <clears throat> right? This is really, really tough. Everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God. And I'm sure, I hope this caused some conversation. What do we do with this? What do we do when the government is corrupt? or in the wrong direction? What do we do when the government is causing harm to its citizens or forgetting the most vulnerable? What do we do when we don't agree with the government policies? Do we still submit? Well, lots of good things have been shared already around this topic, and I hope you've shared a few uh, in addition to that. But here's one thing I'll add that might have already been, been hinted at. The Greek word that's used there uh, is hupotasso, which is translated submit or be subject, but it literally means to arrange stuff respectably in an orderly manner underneath something. So to arrange something with respect in an orderly manner underneath something. Now they could have used another word. They could have used a word that meant obey or conform. But Paul and later Peter does not say blindly obey the government authorities or blindly conform to everything that you hear coming because they didn't do that. Both Paul and Peter actually decided at some points, no, we're not going to obey your orders. We're going to keep preaching the gospels. However, when they were in prison and they formed a protest, they did it in submission to the government in an orderly fashion. 
Paul even said, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen. That should mean something. Or wait a minute, you're going to release us, but make sure you send the authorities because we've got a bone to pick with them. And so they still submitted, but they didn't blindly obey, if that makes sense. And so this is another aspect of political engagement that we have. Submit. Well, here is uh, the fourth corner. The fourth corner is this. Do good. So we have pray and give ourselves to God and submit, but ultimately do good. Always ready to do what is good. I mentioned uh, Tommy Douglas and John Diefenbaker for a good reason. Very different political directions, very different um, ways and agendas that they might have had. Under Tom Tommy Douglas, we got universal health care. That was one of his, he was champion of that. He was passionate about that. He was passionate about that because of the most vulnerable in our society that he saw being neglected. And so as a follower of Jesus, he found that this was one way he could help. This was one way that he could use his political authority to do good. John Diefenbaker, some people would say, uh, failed in many different ways, perhaps. But during his time, he appointed the first ever female cabinet minister, the first indigenous person to Senate, and he had the Bill of Rights passed, which gave the vote for the first time to First Nations peoples. So he wanted to do good, even though he might have had a different political agenda. And I think ultimately, that's what we want to do, uh, to use our political clout, to use our uh, positions of privilege to do good. What is good? What is God calling us to do? And that's something that's part of this political engagement. So the reason we pray and the reason that we give ourselves to God and worship, the reason that we submit, Paul's big concern was this the gospel, so that when we shared the gospel, we did so from a place of integrity and a place of good reputation as the church, so that we can do good. And that's part of our political engagement. So perhaps then, our greatest political action is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that, in a sense, is part of our political engagement. Okay, we learned a lot of things over that time, I hope, and I hope the conversation continues. But one of the things we did learn is that there is a distinction between the church and the state. And Jesus, I think, would tell it like this. He might not use the words church and state, but he talks about two kingdoms, the reality of two kingdoms. Right after his baptism, it says, Jesus began to preach the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus had a message. And when he stood before Pilate, what did he say? My kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this world. It doesn't have the same values. It doesn't have the same goals. It doesn't have the same point of origin. It's not to diminish the importance of worldly and earthly kingdoms, but it's to recognize that the kingdom of Jesus is different. It's not of this world. So let's turn in our Bibles today and begin reading uh, Matthew chapter 13. And over the summer, we're going to stick with one chapter. How great is that? So read it over and over and over again. And we'll come back to this um, passage because this is the watershed parable. We're going to talk a little bit more about parables next week and why they're important and why they're confusing and intended to be confusing 
to others. Sometimes we think of parables as being these great uh, Sunday school illustrations. And actually we find out here that they're not. They're actually intended to cause a little bit of confusion. And you know that because usually when Jesus tells a parable, someone's mad at him. They don't go, oh, that was a lovely illustration. No, they pick up stones to stone them. Um, so there's something going on with these parables, and we need to pay attention to it because they reveal the kingdom of God to us. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 1. Later that same day, Jesus left the house and sat beside the lake. A large crowd soon gathered around him, so he got into a boat. Then he sat there and taught as the people stood on the shore. He told many stories in the form of parables, such as this one. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seeds. As he scattered them across his field, some seeds fell on the footpath, and the birds of the air came and ate them. Other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plants soon wilted under the hot sun, and since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Other seeds fell among the thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. And still, other seeds fell on fertile soil, and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. And I love this next verse. His disciples didn't get it. It doesn't say that, but that's the implication. His disciples came and asked him, why do you use parables when you talk to the people? And he replied, you are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And later Jesus explains it to them. Um, to those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. That is why I use these parables for they look, but they do not really see. They hear but they don't really listen or understand. We're going to talk about that part maybe next week a bit more. So much I want to say about this parable. So much has been said. Hopefully it's super familiar to many of you, but I just want to focus briefly on one thing, and that is the seed. Why seed? This is the dominant metaphor that Jesus uses when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He talks about the seed. And I think it's because of this. By using the seed as a primary metaphor of the kingdom of God, Jesus is showing that the power of the kingdom is not of this world. A seed is powerful, isn't it? I mean, if you drop a seed sometimes into a crack in a concrete and it can grow, it can disturb that whole concrete. I've seen it happen. It happens in the parking lot out here. And it, it sort of pushes up the ground all around it. A seed is powerful, but not in the way that we would expect. There's a, an author who has passed away. His name is Robert Farrar Capon, and he's, he's a little bit quirky, um, a little bit controversial perhaps, but I love some of his writings. And when he talks about the choice of Jesus to use a seed to talk about his kingdom, he says this, given our choice, our pet illustration of the kingdom would probably be a giant nail driven into the world appropriately enough by a giant hammer in the hand of a giant god. Something noisy and noticeable, but a seed, oh, come now. He's quirky, he's English, so you'd have to put up with that. Uh, but so interesting to think through 
uh, the implications of Jesus using a seed to illustrate uh, the kingdom. Martin Luther, he had a phrase that he used to talk about the power of the kingdom of God. He called it left-handed power. Who here is left-handed? Raise your left hand. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good left-handed people. I love left-handed people. My, my daughter, Triona, is left-handed. My mom was left-handed. And I say was because there was a time when it was not permitted. And in Scotland, when she used her left hand, she would be caned. They would, they would beat her hand till she couldn't use it anymore. Not kidding. So she was forced to use, how terrible is that, right? Forced to use her right hand. So you can always tell her writing because it has this weird backward slant like a lefty, um, but she's writing with her right hand. Um, but left-handed people are still a small portion of the population. And Martin Luther's point in drawing attention to left-handed power is that it's the unexpected power. It's the power that we're not as familiar with. Perhaps we could change it up a little bit, and we could call it the non-dominant hand power. That might help us a little bit more, okay? So imagine with me for a moment. I was going to do this, actually, but it would waste too much paper. I've done it in smaller groups. But imagine you have two pieces of paper and a crayon. And maybe go home and try this. Honestly, you'll be astounded at this miracle. Uh, it's not a miracle. Um, but go ahead and pretend that you're drawing something with your dominant hand. So whether it's your left hand, if you're dominant left, or right hand, and you draw something. You might not be a very good artist. Maybe draw a flower. Maybe you draw, I would like a motorcycle or something. Draw something. And you imagine you're drawing and you feel a sense of confidence. You feel that you're able to do it, even though you're not a good artist, but you're familiar with your dominant hand. Now switch hands. And when I've done this with people and they've drawn with, for me, it was my left hand, I, it, it was awkward. Some people said, that was really frustrating for me to have to draw with my left hand. Or, or some people said, I felt really incompetent. Like I just, I couldn't do it very well. Or I felt it was so unfamiliar to make this hand do what I normally am used to the other hand doing. But other people said, that was really freeing to me because I didn't feel I had to be perfect or I didn't feel I had to actually draw something that looked good because I wasn't using it. I had an excuse, basically, you know, I was doing it with my left hand. Um, unless you're ambidextrous like my brother, then this illustration doesn't work. But here's my point. That's what it's like to experience power in the kingdom and how we operate with power and authority in the kingdom of God. It's not with our dominant hand. It's not with the stuff that we're familiar with. It's not with the stuff that we draw on naturally. Wielding power in the kingdom of God, we're going to feel incompetent. It's going to feel unfamiliar but perhaps it's going to feel freeing because we can't use our own strength in this kingdom of God. We need to rely on another power, another strength. That's the power of the spirit. And that's why I think Martin Luther called the power of the kingdom left-handed power. It's powerful, but it's not the kind of power that we are used to. And that's the difference. As Jesus starts talking about the seed, because if I had a kingdom, <laughs> I don't, but if I had a kingdom, I would choose a different image like other people have, like an eagle, perhaps, or, you know, a giant sword or, or something that was intimidating. But a seed, when Jesus talks about the eternal kingdom of God, a seed. So the kingdoms of this world, 
they use, as Robert Farrar Capon says, straight line, dominant handed power. That's what we see all around us. They use the power of the sword. We see that in history, right? The power of conquest, the power of punishment, the power of bloodshed. Nations, including our own, have been established using dominant-handed power, right? That's what we live in. That's what we're used to. That's what we've seen. That's what we've been taught all our lives. Even when it comes to raising our kids, even when it comes to, to working with our neighbors who make us upset or people that have a different point of view, we resort to dominant handed power. We're going to slay them, take them down. We're going to show our power and authority over them. And nations do this. And, and the problem is sometimes the church has done this. We've forgotten the lesson of the kingdom and left-handed power, and we take this right-handed dominant power in order to exercise authority in the world. But the kingdom of God is different. It uses this non-dominant-handed power. It uses the power of the seed, this hidden power, a generous power, and a life-giving power. That's the power of the seed. God's kingdom is formed not by taking from others, but by giving our lives just as Jesus gave his. In fact, the only blood that Jesus shed when establishing his kingdom was his own. He shed his own blood for us, not the blood of someone else. And so as we look at this parable, and we'll go into it a little bit more next week, but as we look at it, really the parable of the sower and the seed is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus being sent into the world. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. We're told later in the passage that the seed is the message of the kingdom or the word of God. But then we're reminded by John in his gospel that the word of God is actually Jesus. Jesus is the, the word of God. He is the seed of the kingdom. And this parable is telling his disciples and those who will pay attention that just as Jesus has been sent into the world, so the majority of the world will reject him and his message. He will not be seen as being terribly successful in the world's standards because of his whole approach. And that's really the choice that we need to make today. First of all, in the first instance, what will we do with Jesus? Will we accept Jesus, his message, his way, Will we accept him as Lord and Savior? In John chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, it says this. Jesus came into the very world he created. That's the sword and the seed. This is a summary of it in some ways. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the power to become the children of God. Have we accepted Christ? That's the first question that I have for us. But the second one is this. What now will we do with his message? Will we continue to rely on our dominant handed power? Or are we willing to learn of the spirit, the non-dominant handed power of the kingdom? What does it mean to operate as a seed and with seed power in this kingdom? We often talk about the gospel about Jesus, right? That Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture, that he rose again the third day according to the scripture, and that is so important. The good news about Jesus. 
But there's also the gospel of Jesus. Jesus actually had a message. He came preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's right here. It's both now and not yet. And he came to instruct us to pay attention to the kingdom when we see it. So will we continue to resort to the straight line, dominant handed power of the sword? Or will we learn to operate in the left handed life giving power of the seed? Repent, says Jesus, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful that you sent your son into this world, knowing that he would be uh, rejected and refused, that he'd be mocked and scorned, knowing that he would go to the cross and that he would die and that it would seem like a defeat. But we're so thankful that in the cross, we find the victory of your son. But help us to learn from that. Help us to follow in his example. Help us to, to shed our, our, our quest for power, our grabbing at authority, and help us to serve and live as your son did. We pray in his name. Amen.